This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's Democratic Senator Michael Bennett has written a letter to the White House about separating immigrant families. It is signed by more than two dozen other senators from both parties. Bennett spoke to me yesterday from Washington about the letter and about the president's recent statements on Russia. This is a bipartisan letter you're sending the president. Why did you want to send it? And um, what's its message for the White House? Uh, The message for the White House is that the default position of the United States of America should be to keep families together. Uh, that it should not be the policy of the United States of America to separate children from their families, and that they should work with faith-based organizations around the country to put these families back together. And it's the first bipartisan letter to be signed on this issue that I'm aware of in the Senate. Now, the administration has said it is working to reunite families. What is it that you hope to add to the discussion here? A sense of urgency. Uh, They're not moving quickly enough. There are 2,500 children that are still separated from their families. I visited the detention center in Aurora on Friday and met with somebody whose nine-year-old son is uh, in Arizona. So I guess that's the first point. And then the second point is that the faith-based community would like to be engaged here and be helpful, consistent with our values as a nation and consistent with their religious values to help these families endure what is a very difficult situation for them, and they haven't necessarily been included. Does the White House pay attention when you send it letters? Uh, Well, it depends. You know, when more than a quarter of the Senate says something, I hope they'll pay attention to it. I want to talk about the president's trip to Helsinki. Uh, He has said that he misspoke and that he does support the U.S. intelligence community's conclusion that Russians meddled in the election, uh, although he has since said it could have been others as well. Uh, what do you make of this moment? I think this is one of the lowest moments that we've had uh, as a country in our foreign policy in a long time. First of all, there was a right time to conclude that the intelligence community's assessment is that Russia interfered, and that's when he was sharing an international stage with Putin. And he didn't do it. So he can wander, come wander back to the United States and say, well, I now sort of think that maybe they had something to do with it, although it might have been others as well. Nobody who has seen the intelligence on this, there is no question about what happened. And it was the Russians who did it. It's not some 400-pound person sitting on their bed at home, as the president once said. It's not maybe some other people. It is the Russians. He should have been telling Putin that we weren't going to put up with it in the United States, and apparently he didn't send that message. It sounds to me like you don't believe that he misspoke. Well, I don't believe he misspoke because this is completely consistent with what he has said from the very beginning. There were briefings that I sat through as a member of the United States Senate where it was made crystal clear that this was the Russians, and there was no ambiguousness about it. And the president had the benefit of that intelligence more than a year ago, and he still said, even back then, that it wasn't clear that it was the Russians that did it. So what would be inconsistent would be for him to now take the position that he believes the intelligence community or that he believes that the Russians are continuing to meddle. I think he's having a hard time saying that because I think he either doesn't believe it or he wants the American people to be misled about what actually happened. This was an attack on our democracy, and it was not trivial. Uh, I sat with an ambassador from a European country six months ago and listened to him tell me how destabilizing the Russians had been in democracies throughout Europe. 
So this isn't even just about the United States. It's an attack on the West. And instead of labeling our allies foes and then going to Helsinki and uh, being on bended knee to Putin, he should have been rallying our allies and then confronting Putin. To use your words that, that Trump was on bended knee with Putin, uh, what do you think his motivations are? I don't have, I don't have the faintest idea. I, I don't have the faintest idea. I mean, I don't think he knows what he's doing to begin with, you know, on these subjects. So I don't, I, 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 it's beyond me to know what the motivations are. But uh, it's just not acceptable. It shouldn't be acceptable. I mean, there's no sense to it. Is there room for Congress to act in this realm? Is there some specific step that you'd like to take to address what you've called this, this low moment? The first thing that we should do is have a briefing for the Senate on what was actually said in Helsinki. Uh, we need to know what the conversation was that was two hours behind closed doors with only translators there in order for us to do our oversight. I also think that the administration should put together a strategy to counter Russian aggression and Russian information warfare, and that the Senate and the House should be part of that, too. We should conduct real oversight to hold hearings uh, to ensure that foreign governments cannot interfere in our election. I think that the president should pass a bill uh, to protect Robert Mueller from being fired. I mean, there are a lot of things for us to do. One other step, uh, as suggested by Colorado's Republican Senator Cory Gardner, is that Russia should be designated a state sponsor of terrorism, uh, which would mean the imposition of new economic and defense sanctions. Gardner cites Russia's activity in Syria, the invasion of Crimea, and the poisoning of two people in Britain uh, as supporting evidence here. Uh, do you think that designation should be imposed? I haven't looked at the designation in the context of Russia, but I certainly think that the State Department should examine that. But the fact that Cory Gardner would say that suggests to you what a mortal threat Russia is and the reason why the president's um, uh, behavior uh, at Helsinki was so poor. I'm, and, you know, I'm glad he feels the way he does. You mentioned, Gardner, that is. You mentioned the Mueller investigation, and there have been some uh, on the left, including Senator Cory Booker, who have said that the president should not be allowed to nominate uh, someone to the Supreme Court and have that person confirmed while the president is under investigation. What, what do you make of that argument? I think that we have had a devastating series of actions, um, most of them undertaken by Mitch McConnell, but not only by Mitch McConnell, that have led us to a place where we may never see another bipartisan confirmation of a Supreme Court justice. And I think that's devastating to the court. I think that's devastating to our country. The actions that Mitch McConnell took to invoke the nuclear option to make Supreme Court nomination subject only to a 51-vote threshold instead of a 60-vote threshold, this has created a terrible dynamic for the country. And I think there is a process in place for uh, the Senate to vote up or down a Supreme Court nominee, and I believe that's what we should do. And do you believe that the Mueller investigation in, in any way disqualifies the president at this moment? From having had I, his I say. That, no, I don't, I don't think that, because I think that we, until very recently as a country, 
we're committed to the rule of law. And if you're committed to the rule of law, then you need to do everything you can to protect Bob Mueller's investigation and then see where the chips fall when that investigation is concluded and he makes his report. Uh, That is the appropriate time for people to consider what action to take as a result of the investigation, not before that. I have heard varying levels of optimism from Democrats about their ability to influence this Supreme Court process. Uh, You sound the least optimistic to me. You know, as you may know, I strongly believe that we should not have filibustered Judge Gorsuch. Judge Gorsuch was replacing Justice Scalia, and because we filibustered Judge Gorsuch and Mitch McConnell invoked the nuclear option, we do not have available to us now a filibuster. And I wish very much that we did. And this is what I argued at the time, that we should wait until there was going to be a change in the majority of the court, and then we would have the filibuster, and we could make that fight. And unfortunately, we don't have it anymore. Senator, thanks for your time. Thank you. Democrat Michael Bennett is a U.S. senator from Colorado. We have an invitation out to Republican Senator Cory Gardner to talk about these issues as well. It was a sign of the big transition Colorado's about to experience. As we waited at the Capitol ahead of our regular interview with the governor, a call came into his office. A constituent wanted to know about requesting clemency. The aide who answered explained that any request filed now would be considered by the next governor, an indication of just how little time is left in Democrat John Hickenlooper's administration. The election to replace him was our first topic of discussion. Governor, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Since we last spoke, voters chose Democrat Jared Polis and Republican Walker Stapleton in the gubernatorial primaries. And immediately from the podiums where they gave their victory speeches, these men started taking shots at each other. Stapleton saying that Polis was trying to buy the job by spending his own money. Polis asserting that Stapleton was beholden to President Trump. You were behind the clean campaign pledge during the Democratic primary. And in 2010, you famously took a shower, several in fact, with uh, all your clothes on. I'm John Hickenlooper, and I guess I'm not a very good politician because I can't stand negative ads. Every time I see one, I feel like I need to take a shower. All of this made me wonder what your thoughts are about the tone of the gubernatorial race thus far. Well, they haven't gotten off on a, on a good foot, as my grandmother would say. I think we'll see. I've, what makes you say that? Well, just because they were quick to attack each other. And I think that's potentially a harbinger of a pretty nasty campaign. And we'll just have to see. And one of the men you are endorsing is one of the ones slinging mud. Have you talked to Jared Polis about this? Oh, he knows how I feel. Uh, I think his feeling is that if there's going to be a, a, a brawl, if he's going to be getting punched, he's going to punch back. And I think, as is often the case, everybody says that. I mean, both sides have who punched first, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Generally, it, you know, I was proud that we got as far in that primary as we did with as little negative advertising. Among the Democrats. Among the Democrats, exactly. In an open election like this, it's more difficult. I think the key, and, and your listeners to this show are going to be important in this, if more people ask for positive campaigns, are vocal in their complaints about the attack ads, I think you can change the culture of a state and make negative ads less successful. One of the candidates on the Democratic side, Donna Lynn, uh, is your lieutenant governor, and she ran a campaign that appeared to be a continuation in many regards of your own administration. 
she finished fourth among the four candidates in that race. Why do you think she didn't do better? I think in this day and age, there is a, a sense of, of alienation from the public. People feel that government isn't serving them the way they want to be served. I think they feel estranged from government in many ways. Certainly, that's focused on Washington. But I think it's true to a certain extent. And I think it's also, in a funny way, the nature of democracy. And when Donalyn, I mean, she was late to get into the campaign. So she knew she was going to have be a little bit of a long shot. But we talked about, in a democracy, people almost always want a change from what they've just had. No matter how successful our economy, no matter, no matter how well we've done over the last eight years, there's always an inclination in the electorate that, yeah, Hickler was okay. He was great. No, we love him. But we want something different. I wonder if she thought the connection to you was actually going to be a strength in the race, whereas your interpretation is it might have weakened her. Yeah, I'm not sure it weakened her, but it, I'm not sure it helped her. Hmm. And I think she was hoping that that, that connection uh, would be more benefit than it probably was. Speaking of campaigning, you recently attended the annual Bilderberg Group conference in Italy. Uh, ostensibly, it's a think tank that chews over global issues, and you're there to engage in that. Uh, but of late, the conference has been equated with presidential politics here in the U.S., uh, the idea that being in attendance is a precursor to a run for president. How did you come to participate in Bilderberg? What well, did you get out of it for the people of Colorado? That's what I'm interested in. Well, too. I took, I, again, it's a weekend thing, and I, I paid my own way. I went on, I used vacation time to go because oh. I didn't, I wasn't sure that, I do think it's useful to the people of Colorado and to the state. These are the smartest people in Europe and the smartest people in the United States talking about the economy, uh, nationalism. They're talking about uh, trade. Are you including yourself in no, that? No, that's why I was saying. I was surprised <laughs> I got invited. Uh, so you were invited. You get invited, and, and, and you don't get invited by a specific person. You're invited by the secretary general who's in charge, but you don't know who in that group decided that you were someone that needed to be there. But I do think being in those situations and talking about the stuff that Colorado has achieved, uh, that our economy went from 40th to 1st, getting a chance to talk about that all these really smart, very experienced people then get to hear about, well, here's why Colorado is a different place than many other states. It is the perennial question with you. The, the Hill reported in June that you said you and your wife, Robin Pringle, will try and sort through it this summer, it being a presidential run. <laughs> how's, the, how's the sorting going? Uh, the sorting's just fine. I mean, we really hadn't thought about it at all. And I think at a certain point, you have to say, well, I'm going to consider it. And, and at this point, we're sorting through it. That's different than considering it. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, but I don't, I don't, obviously we are. Do you bi- wonder why people are obsessed with this question? Is this, do you think it's a media obsession or a popular obsession? Uh, oh, I think maybe a little bit of both. Politics, with all the cable news and all the shows like this one, Ryan, people are paying more attention to politics than they did before. And in a situation like this where there's a lot of division and, and conflict around President Trump and, uh, you know, whether he's, whether he's on our side or the Russian side or, you know, all these different issues that kind of get people's interest, I think there are probably 30 people in the Democratic side who are being discussed and, and there's this kind of curiosity about are they going to run, are they not going to run. It's not like I'm an exclusive 
company. And I think if you were to ask any odds maker, even if I were going to run, I'd be, you know, a three percent or a five percent chance of success. I'd be a long shot. Would you ever run with a Republican on the ticket? I think of your relationship in office as governor with uh, Governor Kasich of Ohio, for instance. And I wonder if that has occurred to you and if it's something that you feel could happen. Well, you know, I admire and respect Governor Kasich tremendously. I I mean, I I have a great affection for the man. He's funny, right? And he's smart. And as much as I appreciate and think it's important that we do healthcare issues together and that we find compromises where we disagree on issues of national significance, I don't think we could ever run together on the same ticket. Uh, A, I think it would be symbolic. And you know, and who would be Veep and who would be president? Right, that would be a, a, a sticky issue. <laughs> okay. And you know, he's there. There are certain issues we do really, uh, on a basic level, disagree about. But I do. I mean, I do think it's important that we have opportunities to see Republicans and Democrats working together to find compromises on issues like health care or the environment. So Colorado Matters recently did a pair of shows from the Western Slope, and we profiled a business owner. Uh, who had moved his operation from Denver to Grand Junction. Kevin Mollick builds teardrop trailers, uh, you know, that you camp in, and uh, he had to have room to grow. If I needed to double my space, I was going to more than double my rent. Traffic also just drove me crazy. It's a quality of life question. Yeah. And he's not alone. It was big news when Rocky Mounts, which makes bike racks, announced it was relocating from Boulder to Grand Junction. How do you see moves like that? Is it like a good redistribution within this state? Or is it a sign that Metro Denver is just getting so expensive that it's now beginning to lose out? I look at it as a good thing. I call it spillover. There's so many people coming into Colorado, and and especially coming into Metro Denver and increasingly Fort Collins, Colorado Springs, uh, Pueblo. I think that spillover, getting to the, the West Slope, and also to some of these people moving out onto the Eastern Plains, that's very healthy for the state. I mean, it's interesting. Many people in Metro Denver think it's too crowded. They think there's too much traffic, there are too many people. And many people in Morgan County or Julesburg or Grand Junction or Craig, they think they need more people. Well, so if people are feeling Metro Denver is too congested and they want to get a little more space, less congestion, you know, get to know their neighbors a little better, uh, that they can do that by going out, you know, an hour and a half from Denver or going out to the West Slope, that's a good thing. Around the state, there's relief that we are in monsoon season, those afternoon rains that quell the vicious wildfires we've seen. And climate change means it's getting hotter and drier. We recently talked to a scientist, in fact, who says that we should ditch the word drought because the dryness is just a way of life now. <laughs> uh, does the state need to be budgeting more for the effects of climate change? And is that the lens that you see these wildfires through? Well, there are two things going on. One is that we probably are going to need to budget a little more. Although, I mean, I'll tell you this bluntly. I think when you budget more, you end up spending more. So what we've tried to do is budget conservatively. I think our budget this year is $25 million, And so far, the state's share of expenditures is probably closer to $36 million. $25 million for wildfires. Right, for fire suppression. You're already over budget. We're already over budget. So, and we're going to have to go back and, and true up with the General Assembly. I think the second question that is worth asking is the money we're spending really being 
assessed appropriately. In other words, are we spending money where we're really saving property values and, and, and making sure we don't have loss of life? I think it's worth looking at. We've had a lot of, I mean, the fourth largest wildfire in the history of the state, and we've had no loss of life. And I'll, I'll knock wood here. We're talking about the Spring Creek fire. Yes. And it certainly could have been much worse. That being said, that wasn't where we spent all the money. Uh, we spent most of the money out, out around Durango. That was the largest expenditure on fires. And we clearly didn't have as many homes, as, many, as much risk there. And yet there we spent tens of millions of dollars. At the 416 fire. At the 416 fire. So at some point I'm hopeful that we will look at on a day-by-day basis how we are spending the money to fight fires and are we really you know, spending that money wisely. In other words, sometimes, and, and people hate it when I say this, but sometimes in certain fires we should let them burn, right, and, 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 and have a natural burn through the forest. A lot of people think that makes the forest healthier. But anyway, I do think that we are in a, in a long-term period of drier conditions and we probably should uh, budget more. And probably part of that should be making sure that we have money to address flood potential. You know, after we've had fires, how do we make sure we repair the landscape? You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Colorado's Governor John Hickenlooper. President Trump recently made a push to keep coal and nuclear power plants open, uh, telling the Department of Energy to prepare immediate steps to stop them from closing. Uh, If those plans indeed proceed, what would that look like for Colorado, which has moved more and more from coal to natural gas? Well, we've still got a couple coal plants. I think at this point we have less than 1,000 employees working in coal mines in Colorado, so we're not a big player. We do have some very high-value coal that is sought after by various commercial uh, enterprises. I don't see that his instructions are going to have much of an impact in Colorado. And as for coal-fired plants? Well, long-term, I think society is always going to choose cleaner sources of energy if they're at the same price or cheaper and as reliable. And certainly, wind and solar are very reliable. I, again, they don't, the wind doesn't blow all day, every day, but if you average it week by week, it's pretty consistent. It's remarkably consistent. You think the market will speak here louder than the administration? Yeah, I think this is a classic situation. Right now, you go to wind and solar, it's less expensive. Uh, people's utility bills, their electric bill at home is going to go down. And they're going to have cleaner air. And they're going to have just as reliable a system as they had before. Who's not going to want to vote for that? And at this point, we can guarantee every one of those workers in a coal-fired plant or in a coal mine at least as good a job, if not a better job. You can uh, guarantee that? Oh, yeah. That's I mean, there, a claim. Yeah, there's so many. We are so short in terms of uh, trained technical people. In other words, uh, electricians, welders, people like that. There is such a shortage both nationally and in Colorado that I think, I mean, I'm sure that there'll be some people that for whatever reason can't find as good a job as, as they had. But by far, most people can. Look at After Cle- some retraining. Uh, yeah, of course, some retraining. Mm-hmm. But that's been the history of the world, right? That we've been retraining ourselves or um, sometimes having to move from one place to another to seek a better life. I want to stick with another federal issue. The FDA recently approved a drug derived from cannabis called Epidiolex. Um, it's used to treat childhood epilepsy. Before it can be prescribed, though, the Drug Enforcement Agency would have to reclassify cannabidiol 
which isn't psychoactive. It can come from hemp. Uh, And it got us thinking about Colorado's hemp crop. According to the Denver Post, there were about 9,000 acres harvested last year. What hope, if any, do you place on hemp in Colorado? Well, you know, I was a skeptic, to be honest. I, you know, Canadians have been growing hemp for a while. I wasn't sure the market would be that large. But now, having been out in rural Colorado and talked to some of the hemp growers, they're pretty excited and they're doing very well. Despite the fact that there's still the federal prohibition. uh, Exactly. So they're having to look at a, a restrained market. And yet they want to grow more and more hemp. If the laws were reasonable, right? I mean, there's no drug inducement in this hemp, right? There's no THC or a minimal amount, nothing you could ever notice. Uh, And yet, for a variety of reasons, this turns out to be a product that's much in demand. Let's open the floodgates. I mean, Colorado right now dominates in the U.S. uh, the production of hemp. And we're already a leader. We're looking at a number of innovations. You go talk to Don Brown, Commissioner of Agriculture. Our wonderful Commissioner of Agriculture. And he wouldn't say this. I'll say this for him. I think he probably was maybe not as skeptical as I was, but a little skeptical. Uh, And yet now he looks at at hemp farmers and says, this is a new crop. This is a a cash crop that has every indication of, of being here for the long term. Governor, thank you for being with us. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Our regular conversation at the Capitol with Colorado's Governor, Democrat John Hickenlooper. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It was a dark chapter in U.S. history when Japanese Americans were held against their will in camps across the U.S., One of those camps, Amache, is in Colorado, near the small town of Grenada on the southeastern plains. Thousands of people were held there under Executive Order 9066. The effect of an executive order issued by the president is to allow the Secretary of War to remove not only Japanese aliens, but Japanese who are American citizens from strategic areas on the West Coast. On Fridays this month and into August, Colorado Matters will present a new documentary from American public media. It is called Order 9066, and it chronicles the relocation and incarceration of Japanese Americans and Colorado's connection to that history. Kate Ellis, a co-producer, joins us from Boston. Hi, Kate. Hi. Let's start with this Colorado connection. What can you tell us about Camp Amache? Well, it was, as you said, it was in the uh, southeast part of Colorado, not actually far from the Kansas border. Um, it was among the smaller of, uh, of the, t- there were basically 10 incarceration camps oh. uh, around the uh, parts of uh, the United States that were removed, that were apart from the West Coast. And Amache was the smallest of them. Um, they it was a it was a sort of desolate area people who had been incarcerated talk a lot about the dust storms that they encountered um uh, what else what would it tell ask me more and i'll i'll yeah, tell I you mean, I, 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 part of the idea was as you say to get these folks away from the coast what was the thinking there the thinking was that um the people people of japanese ancestry on the pacific coast posed a danger to the United States after the bombing of World War II. The idea uh, that was um, propagated by some people in the War Department was that farmers and fishermen were signaling to Japanese boats um, off the shores of the West Coast and that 
they might be in different ways committing espionage. And the thinking went, or the argument went, that it was impossible to tell who of Japanese ancestry living on the West Coast would be loyal to the U.S. and who might be loyal to the Japanese in a time of war. And therefore, they all posed a threat and they all needed to be removed. So this was a population of people in mainly the state of Washington, Oregon, and California. We should also talk about Colorado's then-governor, Ralph Carr. Because he watched this unfold and he had real reservations about it, didn't he? He did. And it's what happened was the the first idea was, well, we'll remove people of Japanese ancestry. And we're talking about roughly 120,000 people, all told, who wound up being incarcerated. We're going to remove them from the West because we're just going to remove them. But Mm -hmm. they can go inland and that will be okay. And the governors of those states, like Utah and Idaho and Wyoming, said, wait a minute, we also have strategic installations here. If Japanese Americans are coming to our states, they need to be you know, living behind barbed wire in camp. They need to be guarded. They're, they're a danger to us as well. But Governor Carr had a slightly different perspective, and he, he didn't necessarily buy that argument. And so he, he welcomed Japanese Americans to come and actually live outside of camp, but he also offered to, to have a camp in Colorado. Um, the, the, the Colorado camp, Amachi was, um, you know, was guarded, uh, you know, by armed guards, but it was very near this little town, as you said, Grenada. And what was unusual about this place is that people could actually walk into town and go get a soda, um, which no one else could do. I mean, first of all, most camps were isolated. I mean, so isolated, they couldn't, nobody could have walked anywhere from camp. Um, but, but I, you know, I've interviewed people who did, in fact, escape being uh, incarcerated um, by driving to Colorado. And, you know, they had a, they had sponsor families. Uh, one person went into college. It wasn't simple, but it, it, Governor Carr was a bit more welcoming and I think uh, maybe reasonable um, mm. than, other, than the other governors. It may have cost him his political career, in fact. I know that mm-hmm. he had aspirations for the Senate, which were dashed. Denver mm-hmm. Post, the newspaper Denver Post, named Carr Colorado Citizen of the Century. And there's a statue of Carr in Denver's Sakura Square. He is memorialized by a plaque at the state capitol. So uh, Japanese-Americans Sab Shimono and Pat Suzuki narrate this series, Order 9066, and both were incarcerated at Amache. Tell us just a bit about them and why you chose them. Well, we chose them. We wanted uh, people who are directly connected to this history, if possible, to narrate the history. Um, and uh, we this is this series is a collaboration with the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. And there's a wonderful curator there who knows basically everybody huh. in the in the Japanese American because of all the curating she's uh, work that she's done for an exhibit that they had they just recently had up called Writing a Wrong. Anyway, she suggested Saab Shimono, who's a longtime actor based in in Los Angeles. And Pat Suzuki, actually, I will tell you, she's a, she's a woman. She's um, been in New York City for years and decades, and she's a professional singer. Um, and so uh, Noriko from the Smithsonian introduced us, and that's how, we, that's how we chose them. And it actually is just a coincidence that Pat and Saab both wound up incarcerated at Amachi. 
Shimono shared his experiences in the time leading up to his family's incarceration. The only memory I have of that time, which was when uh, we were to leave to camp, I just remember my father and mother perspiring. They were on the bed, and I suppose I was on the floor looking up at them because they looked big. And they were deciding what to tear up and what not to tear up because I think... We were told that you couldn't keep anything Japanese and it had to be destroyed. And this is the only time I felt a sense of fear from my parents. Even when we went to camp, I never felt that. I know that you gave Pat Suzuki the opportunity to tell her story as well, but I I guess it was just very difficult for her. It was. um, Pat was... uh, nine years old when she entered the camps. You know, so she was turning into a teenager. And her feeling when she left camp was there was no way that she was going to be defined by this experience at all. And it was common for people of Japanese ancestry when they got out of camp to never speak of it again. I mean, it, uh, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, and for her, I think she just wanted to close off any memories associated with camp. And it wasn't until I did an interview with her this past year that she was sort of willing to kind of take a look at that time in her life. But it was it was difficult. Just, and and I'll, I'll quickly say, yeah. if you don't mind, that um, this time that, that led up to people being incarcerated was, in fact, really terrifying. And she does talk about how frightening it was that she came home at, from school and saw her mother sitting by the fire burning photographs of family members living in Japan. Um, The idea was that if you had anything that associated with Japan, the FBI might come and round up your father, your, you know, the sort of heads of households and take them away because that... That also happened in the early days after after Pearl Harbor. I think I... uh... So appreciate that aspect of this documentary, the idea that it is also about the time leading up to internment. And it makes me think of the story featured in this documentary of Bob Fuchigami. He lives in Lakewood and he was at Amache. But his first stop at age 12 was the Merced Assembly Center in California. Merced was like a prison camp surrounded by barbed wire. Guard towers. What Bob remembers is trying to figure out how to crawl under that barbed wire to pick some juicy-looking grapes growing on the other side. Oh, I thought, gosh, it wouldn't take much to cross that little road, you know, beyond the fence to get the grapes. I mean, you could see them, you could smell them. Like a junior sleuth, Bob began tracking the pattern of the searchlights. He hoped to calculate just the right moment to make his escape, but... One thing stopped him. We were told, you go beyond that fence, you're going to get shot. That was not an empty threat. During the time that they were incarcerated, seven Japanese Americans were shot and killed for stepping outside of camp. Kate, I didn't know that fact. It's one of many that I have learned from Order 9066. Colorado Matters will present it from American Public Media Fridays for the rest of this month and into August. Why did you want to tell this story and and why now? Well, um, and first of all, I want to say that was Pat Suzuki narrating right there. Um, uh, uh, First of all, uh, 
2017 was the 75th anniversary of the signing of Order 9066 that, uh, you know, that Roosevelt signed in early uh, 1942. So we wanted to observe that anniversary. We thought that this is a history that isn't very well known. You know, we call it the Japanese-American, you know, internment. It really was incarceration because, of course, everybody was round up. They were forced into these camps. They couldn't leave. They'd be killed if they were. And then around the time, at the end of 2016, when we were thinking about creating this podcast series and broadcast series, um, there were a few mentions among spokespeople for Trump, and it was, I think, at first candidate Trump, suggesting that there was a precedent, a reasonable precedent for creating registries of Muslims in this country. And and the, the precedent was the Japanese-American incarceration during World War II. And so it started to seem that this might have uh, this history might have some haunting relevance uh, today, and that created a greater sense of urgency. And, excuse me, uh, of urgency to 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 share the story, to dive in and share the story. You talk about incarceration versus internment. I have also heard survivors who refer to these as concentration camps. the mm-hmm. The language is really important here, and it sounds like the language is evolving. That's exactly right. Um, the Japanese American Citizens League and some other Japanese American organizations have really made a concerted effort over the past decade to get away from the euphemisms that were used to describe what was happening to Japanese Americans during World War II. Uh, you know, they weren't uh, sort of evacuated. That makes it sound like that this was something that was done on their behalf. They oh. were forcibly removed, <laughs> you know, from their homes uh, and forced to move inland. Um, same thing with incarceration. The use of concentration camps became difficult, as anybody would assume and understand, I think, after World War II because of the concentration camps in Europe, which really were death camps. But because they were called concentration camps, I think for a while it was dif- people found it difficult to call the camps here concentration camps because of their association with the Holocaust in Europe. Is there an image, an experience that sticks with you after putting together this series? Oh, my goodness. There uh, there are so many. I think that some of the stories that stand out to me, uh, one of them has to do with leaving uh, this woman that we interviewed, Jane Oka, um, talks about being packed into the family's pickup truck to be taken to the train that's going to take them to a concentration camp and their dog chasing after them as they're driving away and finally stopping when the, you know, when he couldn't keep up anymore. Um, you know, those sorts of, they sort of, they're, it's sort of one memory that encapsulates a much deeper and greater loss um, that, that many people suffered. Um, and I could, you know, I could go on. Many families in different ways were split apart as a result of this. The, the loss that they suffered in terms of property, businesses, homes, family life, family structure, communities was, it was catastrophic. Um, Why don't we? And for many different. Oh, sorry. I'm go ahead. That's okay. We're we're not in the same <laughs> yeah. room, so there's this awkward yeah. <laughs> delay. But I, I thought we might wrap yeah. up on these words from Sab Shimono uh, about the relevance of this story today. I don't know. Is there, is there still the president could have an executive order to put other people in incarceration? Yeah, it's possible. So we have to be alert, and we have to speak up, which I would now. Okay, thanks for being with us. 
Thanks so much. Kate Ellis, a journalist with American Public Media and a co-producer of Order 9066, the documentary chronicles the relocation and incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. And it will air in place of Colorado Matters Fridays through August 3rd. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A story now about swimming with a mermaid tail. It's something people do, a mermaid subculture, and it's alive and swimming in Pueblo, where members meet at the CSU Pueblo pool. Pixie Wright is founder of Pueblo's Mermaid Lagoon, and because the tail prevents her from walking, she was carried into the studio by her husband, Bill Wright. He is dressed as a pirate for reasons we'll explore, and welcome to you both. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, sir. Okay. You have a mermaid name, Pixie, I understand. What is it? It's Ren, but everybody just calls me Queen Airy. Queen Airy. And how did you arrive at that name? Um, Ren is an Irish name for my American name. And my pod decided that we needed to have kind of a pecking order. And since I'm the founder, they decided to make me queen. So it just kind of stuck. To make you queen. Okay. And uh, the group is called a pod. It's a pod of mermaids. Yes, it is. You are wearing uh, quite the outfit, shells uh, all over and a tail. We'll talk just a bit about the tails themselves because this is really where the magic is. But I wonder what it feels like to swim as a mermaid. It's really magical. Um, Once you get used to a tail, it's really natural. The water just kind of carries you and it's a very fluid motion and it's very freeing. It's very liberating. It's freeing. And yet it sounds like you'd be bound up in a way. Uh, It takes some getting used to. You do have both legs tied together and you have to swim with a bit of a dolphin kick. Um, But the the movement itself really does over time become natural. And once we're in the water, it really does become our element. Describe your tail for us. It's spectacular. It's got quarter-inch scale-shaped sequins all over it. I've got a metallic red around the outside. I've got a pastel red on the inside that's translucent, so it changes colors when the light hits it. I've got a white spotting and striping pattern down the center, and my fluke is a metallic red with white accents. How much time might you put into a new tail? This particular tail took me eight months. I had to sew each and every one of these sequins on one at a time took a long time. It was quite the process. Our typical tails take anywhere from two hours to two months, depending on the material. And they have to hold up in the water for some amount of time, obviously. Yes, we do. We do coat them in a silicone to help protect them and to keep them from falling off. What was your first experience as a mermaid? Very difficult and almost tragic. Um, I went to swim uh, at the Konakai Apartments, a friend of mine was living there, and the pool this heater... This is in Pueblo? Yes, this was in Pueblo. The pool heater was actually broken. So we swam for a couple hours and, you know, really trying to figure out how to move in the tail and not drown with all of my friends watching. And um, come to find out the next morning, um, an elderly woman saw me swimming in the pool, thought it was fixed, and she actually passed away because the water was so cold. And I ended up with pneumonia. So our first time swimming was... An interesting experience. It is not just women who do this. Men do it, too. We do have mermen, yes. Mermen, the gender-neutral term is mer. Merfolk or mer. Merfolk. And you, indeed, have to adopt a special swimming technique. Yes. Is there an art to this? There is. Um, Some newcomers take to it 
quite quickly. Some guppies, it takes a little bit longer. Guppies. That's how you refer to the neophytes. Yes, the new ones. We call them guppies until they really fully get a grip on how to move in the tail. And once it starts becoming more natural, then they're myrrh. What do you think uh, created this desire in you? Where does it come from? This was actually a childhood obsession. Um, the Little Mermaid, Disney's Little Mermaid came out. Yeah. And I fell in love with Ariel. I could relate to her. It was the first redheaded princess. I'm a redhead. So it just, it was a natural fit. And during career days, they would tell us, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? My answer was mermaid for like five years straight. They finally told me, you need to grow up, you know, and, and pick a career. And so I was relating this story to a really close friend of mine. And six weeks later in the mail was my first tale with a note that said, happy birthday. You were gifted a tale. I was. Do you still have that tale today? I do. You swim with other mers in Pueblo, and you perform both in the water and often on land. And uh, your pod is called Mermaid's Lagoon, and that includes pirates as well. So your husband goes by Captain Rowan, as in Rowan the boat. Yes. And, and Captain, why, why does a mermaid need a pirate? Um, we have a cohabitual relationship. Um, for... The stage shows, we say that it, we protect the mermaids when they're on line since they can't walk. We help. So you do a lot of carrying. Yes. I car- um, our pirates carry the mermaids. That way the magic is still there. They're not getting in the tail when the kids are watching. Um, so a care- lot of this is about the kind of Santa Claus effect, not ruining it for the exactly. little ones. Okay. Exactly. Yes. Um, it's also we help when we have when we're doing vendor shows. The pirates are really in charge of um, bringing patrons into the booth, helping run cash register. Um, this is a business too. It's a business it too. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and do they need protection? Yes. Um, we actually had a show in Springs one time where a woman got a little too excited to see the mermaids and literally picked up, scooped up one of our mermaids and started walking out of the booth with her. Just leaving with a mermaid? Just leave, Just try to leave the, the booth fair. with the mermaid. And we had to run up to her and kind of stop her and sell her down. And she apologized right away because she just got overexcited and we're like, the mermaids aren't for sale. <laughs> okay. So this is uh, one of the roles of a pirate. Have you, have you swum in a mermaid tail? I actually can't swim. Okay. <laughs> so I suppose the answer is no. No, I have that. not. Um, we do have some pirates that do both. They are pirates and mermen. Um, I personally do not, though. They're sort of shapeshifters. Yes. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And when I found out there was a pod of mermaids reading the Pueblo Chieftain, I thought we've got to bring these folks on and hear about this culture. You practice... Every week at a pool, Pixie. And what are those sessions like? First of all, how, how big is this in Pueblo? It's how many a members? standard um, sports swimming pool. It goes down to about 13 feet deep at the depth. Um, we have a two-hour swim session once, sometimes twice a week. We run drills. We practice breath holding. We really try to submerge ourselves as deep in the pool as we can for pressurization um, so that when we do go into bigger water and cave diving, we're prepared for the, the pressure. Cave diving? Yes, we have had an offer from a company down in Texas to partner up and do um, scuba cave diving with his scuba classes. How many people are a part of the pod in Pueblo? This year I have nine active swimmers and four active crewmen. And over our six-year total, we have had a total of 46 pod and crew members. 
Okay, so it it requires crew members. Uh, I want to say that there are other pods in Colorado, including one that performs at the Downtown Aquarium in Denver. Yes, I believe so. Um, Those are the Mystic Mermaids. They belong solely to the Denver Aquarium. Those girls are hired. Um, They are scuba certified, and they do work very closely with the marine animals. Um, We also have a couple side pods in town. I'm not entirely sure of all of their names, so shout out to all of you listening. I hope we get to hear from you soon. And perhaps they'll grow. How many tails do you have? I have probably 12 tails myself. 12 tails? Yes. Okay. And how might uh, that how much might that cost? I actually make my own tails. Okay. So my cost of materials starts at $65 and goes up to 800 depending on the tail. Oh my goodness, it's an investment both in time and money. Well, thank you for being with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Nice to meet you both. So we heard from Pixie Wright, Queen Airy, who leads Mermaid's Lagoon in Pueblo, and from her pirate husband. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.